transformation through courageous conversations with Reverend Michelle Cobb and Bishop Julius Tremble on episode number 35 of the United Methodist People podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. And so I have hope because I do see um, persons saying enough is enough. I have a responsibility. I have a responsibility. And now I will identify other people of like mind and together we will um, begin this journey of learning more about who we are, of listening to one another and to the other, and then doing what we can do to impact change. Welcome to the United Methodist People Podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. Brad believes that strengthening the connection in the United Methodist Church is essential to accomplishing the mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. The United Methodist People Podcast helps clergy and church leaders connect with key insights, hear inspiring stories, and learn from the people making a difference in the United Methodist Church through conversation and commentary. And now, here's Brad. Hello, good people, and welcome to episode number 35 of the United Methodist People podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller, where we continue to seek to strengthen the connection in the United Methodist Church through conversation and commentary. And in particularly, in recent weeks, we've been having in-depth conversation and commentary on matters of racial justice and injustice with Bishop Julius Tremble of the Indiana area of United Methodist Church, as he seeks to be encouraging to all people through this whole process. And we have brought in several special guests to be with us to help us to uh, unpack and to speak into the matters of social and racial justice and injustice. And that is the case today, as Reverend Michelle Cobb is with us. She is the Executive Director of E4PotentialLiving.org, an organization which helps to serve matters to encourage and to equip and to empower organizations and individuals to deal with racial issues and cultural differences in order to help meet the potential of their organizations and individually, and they provide services in racial justice training and intercultural competency training and things of this nature. Uh, Reverend Cobb has served and continues to serve as a pastor in the United Methodist Church and as a conference superintendent in the Indian, in the Indian area and is a great advocate for speaking into matters of racial uh, justice and injustice. In our conversation today, you're going to hear her speak about her gut-level reaction to the killing of George Floyd, the transformative experience she had as a teenager growing up when she, as a, as a black young person, was bused into a white school and experienced some, some rage and insults there and how that was transformative to her. She's going to talk about the importance of cultural uh, and racial differences and how courageous conversations can speak into those and the need for turning the listening and conversation and listening into action 
and how that is the process how we can maximize uh, organizations and community transformation. Here on the United Methodist People Podcast, we're here to be helpful to you. You can always go to back episodes of the United Methodist People Podcast at unitedmethodistpodcast.com and our Facebook page, facebook.com slash unitedmethodistpodcast. Bishop Julius Treble also gives great insight into the issue at hand here and uh, talks about how we have all things we need, all the words we need in the United Methodist Church through our discipline and through our social principles and through our way of living to speak into racism and to do so uh, with courage. You're going to love this episode of the United Methodist People podcast. Let's get into this great conversation right now. Reverend Dr. Brad Miller here on the United Methodist People podcast, where it is our mission to strengthen the connection in the United Methodist Church through conversation and commentary and to provide a word of insight and an encouraging word. For the last uh, several episodes, Bishop Julius Trimble of the Indiana Area United Methodist Church has been with us to speak an encouraging word into our lives and recently to speak about speak into the situation uh, regarding racial injustice in our world. And he has asked us to bring on to a very uh, special guest into our conversation today. And so we do welcome Reverend Michelle Cobb, who is the executive director of E4PotentialLiving.org, which is an organization which provides workshops and other uh, training having to do with racial injustice or racial justice and a training and to help people have transformation in their organizations. Probably no better time for an organization such as this, but I want to welcome to the podcast, uh, Reverend, Reverend Cobb and, and Bishop Trouble. Welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Brent. Good to be with you and good to have an opportunity to touch base with our listeners. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, we have been uh, sharing that we're, we're recording this in the middle of, of July of uh, 2020, and for the last several weeks, we've been embroiled in this situation. Uh, it's been years and years and years, of course, but it's, it's come to the surface, embroiled in matters of, of racial justice and justice. We're going to speak to that it's in depth here with uh, with Bishop and Michelle here in just a bit. But uh, Michelle, I want to welcome you to uh, the, the podcast, and just I really like to hear some some folks. Uh, you have served in many capacities in the church and in uh, advocacy in many ways for for racial uh, justice. But I really like to hear kind of the beginnings of your faith journey. What brought you to Christ in the first place? A little bit about your journey that brought you into service and ministry and what you're doing now. Thank you. I grew up in a Christian home. My parents uh, lived out their faith before my sister and myself. Um, and they helped us to see that uh, this relationship with God through Jesus Christ was to be a viable and intimate one. And um, I am forever grateful uh, for their witness uh, before my life. Um, growing up in the church, like many people, I thought I understood how who God was. And uh, for a certain period of time, I had what I would call a brownie point system with God. You know, God is great. And if I do something great for God, God will do something great for me. And I reached a point whereby I was no longer doing great things for God. And yet God was still faithful uh, and merciful 
and needless to say, very gracious. When I recommitted my life to Jesus Christ as a young adult, I realized that um, God's plans for my life were the best plans. And so for the remainder of my life, I've always uh, attempted to discern what is God's will for my life at, at a particular moment. So I found myself um, pastoring in a local church setting. I have served as a staff chaplain. Of course, uh, you know that I have served um, as a conference superintendent. And in 2018, um, began serving as executive director of E4 Potential Living, uh, whereby we, we strive to encourage and equip and empower individuals and organizations to engage with others across racial lines and cultural differences um, to maximize the potential for community transformation. And Brad and Bishop, I will share with you that the impetus of that really began when I was a freshman in high school and um, I was part of a busing system. Mm -hmm. And there were uh, two busloads of African-American students who were being bused to an all-white uh, section of the community of Gary. And even to this day, I can still see the parents who gathered on the corner with signs, yelling, being very angry at the fact that there were high school students coming into their community. And I always thought if we could just sit down and reason together and listen to one another and get a better understanding of where the other is coming from, maybe we can... Uh, just resolve whatever that was that motivated them to act in such hateful and angry ways. You know, you saw right up front there as a, at a young age, the intensity and the uh, anger at times and the passion people have about these issues. And, and apparently that was a really transformative for you in terms of doing something about it. And that's what we're involved with now. And I think that, the experience you had in that busing situation made some changes for you. And recently we've had an event, a number of events really that have happened, which has kind of turned the light on for a lot of folks in terms of the issues of racial injustice. And Michelle, I wanted to speak to you a little bit about a v event that happened just at the end of May. We had a terrible killing of a gentleman named George Floyd, which set off a series of events for a lot of people, illuminating them when the, some people, especially white folks, were not aware about the issues regarding violence mm -hmm. activities towards uh, people of color. And I just want to get your kind of your gut level, or your visceral reaction to what happened there in that event. What mm -hmm. happened with you? I think, first of all, I experienced... Uh, a sickening feeling to see a human being subjected to such inhumane treatment. And then when that victim, Mr. George Floyd, expressed that he could not breathe, there was no compassion shown to him. Later on, I discovered that that particular um, technique was not only legal, in Minneapolis, but it was legal in other police departments as well. Um, so that was my initial uh, reaction. And the second one was, okay, here we go again. Another African-American male um, has experienced death at the hands of police officers over an event that in other communities would not have warranted 
such an abuse of power. Hmm. And it sounds like when you say, here we go again, sadly, this type of event was, although shocking, not surprising. Is that fair to say? That is very fair. I think during the Black Lives Matter movement, we've heard the roll call of many names and um, names that made the um, 6 p.m. evening news, names that disappeared from our um, consciousness. But um, with every name, with every event, um, there has been a residue that has remained. And this residue has been one, again, of injustice, of um, an overreaching of police power when it comes to subduing a person of color. Yes. And that, so not surprising, and yet... For many folks, I'll just say for a lot of white folks, it was surprising in the sense of really brought to the forefront the depth and the the, the uh, grossness of the act and the, the, what happened there. So if you could, uh, Michelle, I'd just like for you to kind of characterize what has happened since then in terms of the the uh, extent of the reaction, the certainly how the circumstances around this seem to have pervasively impacted the whole world, uh, not just the African-American community or, or communities of color, uh, white folks, many folks, people in every city, every state, every country. How, why is that? What happened here in this particular situation? Can you characterize that a little bit? I think it, if we were to think that this was an isolated moment and all of a sudden we had no concern no sense of emotional investment in what has been taking place within the African-American community in particular regarding injustices to moving from zero to 100 um, miles per hour of getting involved. I think we will misread what has been taking place in this nation. Um, According to a Pew Research survey back in 2019, um, 58% of Americans, uh, six out of 10, believe that race relations in the U.S. is bad. That was in 2019. I think what the George Floyd experience did along that ushered in even more so to a a larger degree, um, the platform for the Black Lives Matter movement is that now individuals in America, let's begin here, had an opportunity to do something about the frustration, about the sense of Uh, relationships are not good in this country. So the George Floyd killing was an impetus that led to many um, non-people of color being able to do something with their feelings, with their attitudes, with their beliefs um, regarding um, injustices. That is what what I uh, would suggest has taken place in America. You are correct that we have seen from a worldwide perspective a a chord that has been struck. And again, people across the world have been appalled at what they witnessed when they witnessed the George Floyd killing. Again, how can one human being be subjected to such inhumane treatment by a population that is trained to to protect and serve? And so I think that with the 
viewing of that footage, along with some undercurrents within other parts of our world community, global community of unrest, that people saw a common um, cause that they could participate in. Let's be real clear. We've had racial injustices, and we do have racial injustices in other parts of the world. Yes. And we've had this go throughout the world. It's had its impacted here. And it is uh, certainly uh, a phenomenon that is huge in scope. And yet I think it's important that we make it local and personal in nature. And uh, maybe, Bishop, maybe you can help speak to this as well. How can we, and, and Michelle, how can we speak to this issue about how we can take the lessons learned from this and apply them to our local lives and settings? Well, let me just say, first of all, thank, thank you to Pastor Michelle Cobb for being on and um, uh, just reminding us of the depth and scope of racism. Uh, in light of, the, light of the recent incidents, I was just on uh, a call yesterday um, discussing an incident here in our state in Indiana, in Bloomington, Indiana. Yes. So it's like, uh, you know, it's like you're waiting with bated breath on what the, what the next story in the next community is going to emerge, especially in light of now we have social media and people have cell phones. Actually, I believe, uh, Brad, that cell phones are, be, are saving lives. Yes. Because it were not for, you know, the video of George Floyd. How many, how many of those, that what happened to him, it happened, as uh, Michelle made reference to, in, in Minneapolis, 230-something times, and where, where they had subdued a person. 44 persons had passed out, you know, with that kind of, they didn't die. But uh, we didn't see those on video. I think right now, Brad, we're at a moment where the integrity of our nation and our church is on trial. Uh, and so I, I keep waking up asking the question, what should mature Christians be doing in, at this moment in history? And, you know, what, what is it that we can learn uh, from these uh, not only uh, uh, horrific, but traumatic? We're, we're experiencing societal trauma with two pandemics, the, the coronavirus pandemic and and the pandemic of, of, of racism run amok, if you will. So, mm. Someone has said, the people don't mind being racist, they just don't want to be called racist. Oh, so, wow. Yes. And well, that's where the, the video comes in, right? They don't want yeah. to, do, that's been, it's calling people out. And you take the situations we have here in Minneapolis with the video and you multiply that across the, every community in the whole country and the whole world, you know, that's not been seen. Now it's being seen. Mm. Mm. Into this, we need to act, find ways to act, uh, to take the lessons here and apply them locally and in, or in our organizations. And, and Michelle, you are part of a, uh, of a, of a, of a uh, organization called E4PotentialLiving.org, which is seeking to speak into companies and churches and various organizations regarding social and racial uh, justice training. Uh, Wow, what an appropriate time to be a part of an uh, organization like this. Tell us a little bit about your organization and about what type of things that you do. Um, so e Potential Living recognizes that um, it's important for us to create brave space for courageous uh, conversations for individuals in small group settings. 
to have about race and racism in the United States. Uh, the goal of our racial dialogue circles, that's one of the resources that we offer, is to create a strategy or plan of action to address an issue of racism within a local community. And we also ask individuals to identify individual goals that they will um, implement in order for them to reach their personal potential. Um, in addition to offering racial dialogue circles, which is a resource um, developed by everydaydemocracy.org, we also provide an opportunity for individuals to learn more about um, themselves from a cultural perspective. Cultural fluency is one of the top 10 work skills that has been identified uh, needed for the 21st century. And so um, those are two of the uh, resources that we do offer. What we know is that um, individuals are hesitant, even today, they, they may participate in, in um, Black Lives Matter uh, peaceful marches, um, but there's still some hesitation on the part of individuals to come together with people who are not like them from another uh, uh, race or ethnicity to sit down and begin to have hard conversations because they're concerned that they may say the wrong thing or they may be viewed or called out as a racist. What we do as an organization, again, is to create that brave space um, that honors the dignity of the individual in order for courageous conversations to take place. Because unless we begin to have conversations that will lead to action, then we will find ourselves in this same place within 10 years. There is a need now for us to move beyond feeling badly about what we see, uh, feeling hopeless, helpless about what we see. It's now time for us to actively be involved in um, some change first from a personal perspective and then also from a local church perspective and beyond. So who, who, and so this is a, sounds like a great resource and tool that many people are kind of grasping for right now, I believe, you know, in terms of what, you know, if we're going to do something, how do we do it and who can be helpless to do it? But so who are some of the clientele? Who are you serving? What types of groups are, is E for Potential Living serving? Right. We have served um, and we do serve um, local churches, um, pastors who find themselves in dominant um, culture communities and yet recognize the need uh, to have these hard conversations. Uh, we have also worked with teachers and administrators um, in, a, in other settings. We have also worked with um, a diverse group of business school, uh, civic um, level leaders in other communities. So individuals who recognize that it is imperative for them to better understand themselves and the other in order for their community to be as healthy as possible. Yes. And I am, you mentioned, well, first of all, you, this, this or the organization E for potential learning is nothing new. It's not a, it's not a reaction to uh, recent events. It's been going on for uh, a few years, at least that I'm aware of, but I'm, so I'm, yeah. So I'm curious about any reaction you may have had from uh, folks that you've served prior to the George Floyd incident uh, churches or businesses, organizations. Have you got any reaction from those folks, any uh, response to uh, what has happened now? I'm just curious about that. 
No, I, we've not uh, officially received responses from those individuals who have participated in racial dialogue circles. Um, I will share with you the, as an antidote that what we are witnessing are persons who have um, served as facilitators recognize a greater need to um, offer more racial dialogue circles. There is a sense of urgency on the part of individuals who um, provide the training to communities who are ready to participate in such an endeavor. Mm -hmm. Brent, Brent, let me weigh in on that a little bit. Please, please. Because we have had several uh, uh, Zoom conversations with persons who are in the Indiana Conference of the United Methodist Church, persons who are concerned about what should be the church's response in light of this uh, new space that we are in. And a number of persons who have uh, participated in previous opportunities that uh, Pastor Michelle is making reference to have identified themselves as as eager to participate. Uh, If persons are interested, they can contact Shannon Stringer of the uh, Indiana Conference United Methodist Church. Uh, to be to, to be part of right now, which it, what has been an informal group of people who are uh, gathering on a Zoom, Zoom plan Zoom calls for both educational opportunities and just to uh, pray and listen around what should the church response be. So I know if there are persons uh, uh, who are who have an interest, uh, uh, maybe you've had some training, or you just you just want to be part of the solution. Mm-hmm. And we certainly would want lay people and clergy to identify themselves uh, so that we can make sure that they are invited to uh, future conversations and make sure that we make a, make available as we're developing a resource list uh, for, for persons to um, yeah, re- re- respond. Of course, the United Methodist Church, the Council of Bishops, and if you go to umc.org in racism, uh, you'll see, or dismantling racism, you'll see uh, resources come up from United Methodist Communications and from the Council of Bishops of the United Methodist Church. I think it's so important because a lot of people, the awareness has been raised and now is the time to act. I mean, it's always been the time to act, but really to take advantage of now. And one of the things you mentioned there, Michelle and Bishop, you as well, is courageous conversations, those uncomfortable conversations. <laughs> Michelle, can you give us an example, perhaps out of a workshop or some experience you've had where some courageous conversation took place that led to some sort of a transformation? Mm -hmm. There are two that come to my mind. And as a matter of fact, if your listeners will go to our website, www.e4potentialliving.org, under testimonials, you will um, not only read testimonials that our um, clients have graciously offered, but I want them to also view the video by one of our participants, who's now a facilitator, um, Mrs. Casey Berkshire. Casey acknowledged that when she um, um, attended her first racial dialogue circle meeting, she wasn't sure about what what to expect. You know, would she be called out as a racist? Would fights break out? I mean, to have her to describe her initial uh, thoughts is very enlightening. And I think it's very common as well. Uh, the feelings that she expressed are, are common feelings. But here's a young lady who literally experienced transformation before our eyes. She was able to begin to 
take advantage of the uh, racial equity lenses that we were able to provide her with through the training. And she was able to begin to see in new ways what had been a familiar environment to her. Uh, so that's, that's one example. The, the next example that I want to lift up is the example of another participant who, after completing the racial dialogue circle um, experience, decided that her personal goal would be to make an impact in the community. And so she has decided to run for office. Oh, wow. Again, we are excited that we could play a part in helping individuals to, to reach their potential um, as they continue to look at their world view now through racial equity lenses. And they're now able to see those areas that need to be addressed and uh, confronted and addressed um, so that good and potential transformation of the community can take place. That's uh, that's awesome. When you say, when you say courageous conversations, to me that means people choosing to face some fearful situations, facing their fears, and part of that is facing all these demons that are within us or within our organizations. And this dialogue is taking place, and transformation is is taking place. One I'd like the, to uh, go Brad, ahead, Bishop. One of the things that uh, Brad that Ibram uh, Kendi says in, uh, uh, in his How to Be an Anti-Racist is that uh, the opposite of, of racist or racism is not not racist. <laughs> the opposite is anti-racist. Yes. So I, you know, I think we've been living in a space where people, even when people acknowledge, well, I know that there's racist acts and racism exists in, institutionally and individually, uh, but I, I'm not a racist. Well, the opposite of racism or the antidote, if you will, uh, is not just being or claiming to be a not racist, but actually claiming a new space. And I think some of what the work that Pastor Michelle is is doing and others are doing are helping us to move beyond just uh, being observers and, uh, you know, traumatized along with others and saying, okay, in my Christian walk, for example, I'm just talking even specifically to those in our, who, who are followers of Jesus to say, what does it mean for me in my Christian walk, not just to say that in my own mind, I'm doing no harm. What does it actually mean for me to do good? Yes. And that would be to me to claim new space, which I'm, I'm, I'm pushing unapologetically for all of us, uh, Dr. Brad, to, to, to embrace a new space and I don't know that we can leap there, but I certainly want to lean into being an, an anti-racist as a Christian. Uh, and I think that's, I think that's, that, I think begins, that, uh, that begins with some of the kinds of things that uh, Pastor Michelle is discussing. Yeah. Well, we have a lot of rationalization that's taking place, especially among white folks, you know, that uh, because we haven't done anything uh, uh, overtly racist that somehow we're okay. And now we need to speak more directly into it. And I think that leads us to where I want to go for just a minute or two here, Michelle and Bishop. And that has to do with our United Methodist Church, our beloved church needs to uh, have some transitions of our own. You spoke to some of them already, but uh, particularly you, Michelle, after serving as a conference superintendent and your role in the church, what are some of the things that the church can do now or maybe do better to speak of the issues of, of racism or social injustice? 
I think first and foremost, we have to speak truth to one another and to acknowledge how we've been complicit in the area of racism. I think we have to speak truth about our history as a nation and how that has impacted us as followers of Jesus Christ who live in these United States. I think we have to speak truth about the fact that we're living in a time now where conversation is the beginning point, but it cannot be the end point. That Jesus Christ is calling us to do more than to feel empathy, but he's calling us to start dismantling systems and structures that are leading to racism and injustices. That's the mandate that we have as followers of Jesus Christ. And that is a mandate that we've said as United Methodists that we want to pursue. So it's now time for us to live into the reality of who we say we are as followers of Jesus Christ and as members of his body known as the United Methodist Church. That's awesome. Are we doing it? Are we uh, are we succeeding or are we um, in a long, hard process that we are kicking and screaming or are we embracing this? Let me share with you, Brad and Bishop, that our philosophy is that we only want people to participate in racial dialogue circles who are ready to have such hard and brave conversations. Now, I I say that because in response to your question, I think that there are people who who can find themselves along that continuum. (laughs) There are those who are kicking and screaming, Mm -hmm. and yet there are those who are saying, what can I do? What must I do Um, in response to who I say I am as a follower of Jesus Christ? And so I think that we're going to find... people along that continuum. From my perspective, I have to take a balcony view and I'm finding and I'm seeing hope because what I'm seeing is across the connection and even here in in the Indiana Conference, there are churches that are saying it's time for us to begin to look at issues of white supremacy, white privilege, And they're taking advantage of the resources that we as a denomination offer. Those are good signs. And so I have hope because I do see um, persons saying enough is enough. I have a a responsibility. And now I will identify other people of like mind. And together we will um, begin this journey of learning more about who we are, of listening to one another and to the other, and then doing what we can do to impact change. You mentioned listening better to one another and to the other. Mm -hmm. And I think that certainly has become to the forefront, this need for better listening. So I'd be interested in if you think we are becoming better listeners. And then if so, especially among white folks, what are, uh, white folks still not hearing uh, that uh, needs to be that that they need to hear in this process. I, I think, from my perspective, um, white people are still struggling with the authentic voice of people of color. I think because of how we've been socialized in these United States, um, well-meaning uh, white people begin the process of trying to listen, but then mm, their 
um, savior mentality, their patriarchal mentalities can kick in. So the challenge is to strive to hear the authentic voices of people of color and recognize that those voices are able to assist the dominant culture white people with information that can benefit them personally as well as um, um, corporately. I think it's also important to remember this, that we've had conversations for over 70 plus years in these United States. So having conversations is nothing new. What people of color are looking for today is are you willing to move from conversation to action? Yes. And so what I'm aware of is that just as white people are now ready to have conversations with people of color and African-American people in particular, what you may find as you attempt to identify people of color, African-Americans in particular to engage in conversation with is that there's a reticence on their part to begin having conversation because they have done, had those conversations before, which are very emotionally draining. And yet those conversations led to nothing other than white people feeling good about the fact that they had had conversations with people of color and in particular, mm-hmm. African-Americans. So the so, payoff, the, so the payoff did just to put it in one terms, the payoff or the results were just not there. The conversations happened, but there wasn't results is what I'm and hearing. It, and it's, well, of course, and it's obvious because of the state that we're in today. Sure. As absolutely. I said, conversations have taken place for many, many years, but yet today we find ourselves where we are, which says to me that the conversations did not meet their potential or reach their potential within that setting, within that community, within that mm-hmm. church, with, uh, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Bishop, I said you wanted to jump in on this, that you've got some things you would like to uh, ask Michelle about. Well, I, I think she's answered a lot of the things I was going to ask. I, I, I would jump in and say that uh, beyond conversations, people, I think, are looking for I mean, what are the policies and structural and institutional changes mm-hmm. that can that can really change people's lives? Because we're talking about, um, in many instances, you, you you talk about what's radical and revolutionary is how do how do we unlearn history? I I don't know the answer to that. I mean, how do we overcome, uh, you know, four hundred years of 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 historical oppression that still manifests itself today. For example, Brian Stevenson says that people of color, now think about this, people of color in the United States, particularly young black men, but not only young black men, are burdened with the presumption of guilt and dangerousness. So that means that when you look at a person, and Brian Stevenson tells a story tells a story of himself as a young lawyer, graduate of Harvard, uh, who had a very negative encounter with police. I believe it was in Georgia. Um, but, you know, they looked, they stopped him. They looked at him. You can't look at someone and tell whether they're educated or not, or whether they have two parents or not, or whether they're employed. But you could look, they could look at him and tell that he was a black man. Uh, and so the, the, the whole notion that black people, particularly black and brown people, particularly black men, are burdened with this presumptions of guilt and dangerousness uh, and um, that's that's a that's a 
terrible burden to carry. And so the first thing we often think about is when we see one of these things, even subconsciously, uh, and and I, I confess this as a as an African American, you know, what did this person do that resulted in them being stopped or so forth? And then you when you find out uh, and there's an inordinate amount of times that the person, I guess the mitigating factor was the person carried with them this burden of presumption of guilt of something or this burden of being somehow dangerous. Charles, uh, Charles Mills, uh, in, in rock, talking about America's racial contract, says there's an underlying assumption of white innocence and black guilt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... I mean, we're, talk, we're talking about matters of racial profiling, for instance, this type yeah, of thing. I mean, yeah. just in just in society, period. So, so when people say, "I don't, I don't see how I benefit from privilege," mm-hmm. well, first of all, you start off you're, when you're walking around, you're walking around with the assumption of innocence. Mm-hmm. You know that you you haven't done anything wrong. You haven't. In, there's no reason to think you've done anything wrong. And then then there are people. People will say, "Well, this is bizarre," but that. But the data really reflects that it's not bizarre because I, I know this when I was in Iowa, we had several communities where Latino men were being stopped, you know, all the time. And part of it was, well, we just we just assume that they were here illegally. Uh, and these are folks who may have been living in the community for 40 or 50 years. So we have a lot, a lot to overcome. It's kind of baked into sure. our, our history and our and our culture and our DNA. So it's not, you know, I, the experts probably call make say talk about unconscious bias or, or yes. privilege and so forth. So as Christians, I think that's the that's the big challenge. What does it mean? You know, Second Corinthians fifteen. You know, with those once we are in Christ, we become new creatures. The old has passed away. So for for me, I think at this moment in history, ending or dismantling racism is not an aspirational goal. Uh, that just can be articulated in statements and resolutions. It's our Christian response to to uh, what is a public health crisis. Yeah, I think, it, I think it's our mission. It's our mission. Yeah. It's our mission. Yeah. Well, Bishop, I want to come back to you just for a moment for some closing, some thoughts, and any anything else you want to share. But uh, Michelle, I really do like to ask you one more thing, if we can, and that, or at least a couple more things, having to do with the what's next. You know, what does the future hold for us? You know, we know that we have a history here of uh, not always following through, as we've mentioned, about some of the things we've been talking about regarding racial injustice and things that sometimes backtracked. And we have people who are looking towards the past as they're, you know, where they want to be. But I would just ask you, what do you see moving forward for our country and for our church in terms of racial uh, relationships, particularly good stuff, signs of hope? signs of possibility. Well, I, I, I appreciate the fact that we're going to end on hope. That's who we are, right? People yes. of hope. Um, what gives me hope is um, when I look at the uh, movement that we're witnessing, a movement that is saying enough is enough. Um, this movement is made up of a younger and a more diverse group of people. That's exciting. For young people to say enough is enough when it comes to racism and social injustices, um, for a more diverse group of people to say enough is enough when it comes to uh, racism and social injustices, that gives me hope. For the church to say, once again, under this bishop in particular, 
um, because I am uh, mindful of the conversations that Bishop um, has, has shared uh, with you that are taking place. I'm excited that the church really um, in, in, in the Indiana Conference is now being held accountable regarding what kinds of conversations are you having? What are you literally doing, actively doing to address this issue? And for years, uh, Brad, you know this, and Bishop, you know this, for years, pastors and congregations could say, well, you know, I don't need to address it because I live in a homogeneous community. Well, what we know today is that these homogeneous communities, and many of them are very affluent, are being built by design to make sure that you will remain homogeneous. So even our homogeneous communities of faith who find themselves in homogeneous communities are now being um, asked the hard questions by our bishop and the leadership team. What are you doing uh, to help address this societal issue? And so that gives me hope. That gives me hope that that there are younger clergy, middle-aged clergy, older clergy, younger adults, middle-aged adults, older adults within our a church family that are asking these hard questions. I'm, yeah. I, I'm serving a church right now whereby, um, and of course, well, you may not know this, but it's a cross-racial appointment. But even before I arrived, the, the several leaders within the congregation said, we need to start having conversations about race and, and racism um, within um, our society. And so, congregations are recognizing that they have a role to play in addressing this particular issue and they're doing something about it. So that, that gives me hope. hope. Well, I think the good thing about that, what you're saying saying is that these courageous conversations are being led by some fresh faces and some fresh voices. And that's helping to guide us in some directions, including some of those homogeneous or supposedly homogeneous communities uh, that uh, are out there. And that's, I think that's a step in the right direction. Bishop, what do you have to share with us today, maybe out of our conversation today? What are some of the courageous conversations we can be having? What word of encouragement can you give to us to uh, be engaged with that? I think we have all the right words, and often they're in the right places, certainly in the United Methodist Church. And I say that knowing that we have a checkered history as a, as a church, as, to, as does the Christian movement itself. I mean, in Methodism, whether we were both abolitionists and slaveholders, or we were both uh, participants in the civil rights movement and those who, who were signers on the letter to Dr. King when he wrote his letter from the Birmingham jail. So you know, who said we should wait, uh, progress would, would come in time. So I recognize we have a checkered history, but we have all the right words. If you look at our discipline or our social principles, yeah. right in our constitution, We say the United Methodist Church recognizes the sin of racism, and we recognize that it's been destructive to the unity of the church and and to the detriment of our communities. But we also say that we have a prophetic role uh, to speak to the world and to the church. So I think uh, United Methodist lay and clergy, we're on solid ground, both from the Bible and from our, our polity and doctrine, to say we should be on the right side of history. Uh, and, and where I find hope, uh, uh, Brad and, and Michelle, is that I don't see this as totally a human effort. Uh, I think God's hand is in this. I think you know God's hand is in this 
tragedy. I don't. I'm not suggesting God. God. God caused either one of these pandemics, mm-hmm. but I do recognize that God can point us that there is a more excellent way, uh, and that we we don't have to do it ourselves. You know, uh, in uh, Second Second Chronicles seven fourteen. You know, if mm-hmm. if my people who are called mm-hmm. by my name mm-hmm. humble themselves and pray. So I always say the first order of the church is to be people of prayer. But after mm-hmm. we pray, we do need to engage in uh, important listening and conversations and also the second part of our mission statement, which is the transformation of the world. I mean, if there's ever been a time for us to be take serious, both being disciples of Jesus, where we can communicate and also encourage people, uh, you know, to teach our children and grandchildren and nieces and nephews uh, to love. I'm inspired when I saw the response in Bloomington, Indiana, the, the, the just the number uh you know, how many people who are not brown or black who are really uh, mm-hmm. saying this is this is our problem to address uh, as a nation and as a as a as a local community. Often this takes place. Actually, it's lived out in local areas. Mm-hmm. But also to begin to look hard at what does it mean to to really advocate for systemic change or as one of my colleagues said uh, on yesterday, you know, access to things that some people have access to and others don't have access to. So, for example, internet access. Sure. Well, that that's an awesome way to us to kind of bring this around. And one of the ways that we can have these conversations is through uh, organizations such as what uh, Michelle leads, e4potentialliving.org. And uh, Michelle, I assume if folks want to get a hold of you as for a resource for that, they can go to your website. Is that the that's correct. Yes. And that is E and then the numeral for potentialliving.org. Bishop, would you mind closing us with a, a closing thought or a prayer? Most certainly. I, I certainly want to thank the Reverend Michelle Cobb. Uh, uh, some of us like to call him Pastor Michelle uh, or, or, uh, and the Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. Uh, I think this vehicle, uh, the podcast, United Methodist uh, Podcast, yes. to, allows for conversation and for people to have access uh, who are all kinds of uh, different places. So I hope we will, uh, those of us who hear the podcast and know about it can uh, promote it. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for the gift of this day. Uh, Yesterday, we thank you for that. But tomorrow, we we, we know you've got that covered. But we want to thank you for this day, God, this day. Wherever and whenever people hear this podcast, may they be blessed knowing that they are loved by you uh, and that, they don't need to fill out any application to, for that to happen. So, God, we thank you for that. We thank you for uh, the witness. And we thank you for this moment in history. Oh, Lord, lead us in the way you would lead us, uh, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to express my great gratitude to Reverend Michelle Cobb of E. FullPotentialLiving.org, who was speaking into our was speaking into our issues of racism and of cultural divides that can be bridged through courageous conversations today. Thank you so much for what she brought into our conversation and to the encouraging words of Bishop Tremble, Bishop Julius Tremble, who always speaks an encouraging word, but also gives us some things to think about. And the word that I wouldn't want us to think about here today, uh, as a takeaway from our conversation today, is the phrase "enough." is enough. We talked about how the George Floyd killing brought to the forefront 
the uh, issues of racism for a lot of folks, but it's really been there and conversations have been taking place about this for many, many, many years in the church and certainly in our society, in our country, and in our world. And that there's an opportunity right now, and there's many people, many people are encouraged by the fact that conversations are taking place among people of all ages and, and races and backgrounds, and it's pervasive across our country and across the world, that the conversations are taking place regarding racial justice. And there's great potential for transformation. But there's a sense here among many uh, that enough is enough, and we can no longer just be uh, appropriate to do no harm as a church, but we must be active in doing good. I think as our calling as United Methodist clergy and lay people and as the church is to speak into a world, a transformative world of the goodness and grace of Jesus Christ. And I understand it's not only about uh, doing no harm, but it's about doing good. That's what we're about here at the United Methodist People podcast. You can always go to our back episodes at unitedmethodistpodcast.com and receive lots of insights from lots of church leaders or on our uh, Facebook page, United, uh, facebook.com slash United Methodist Podcast. My name is Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. As always, it is good to be with you to speak or to strengthen the connection in United Methodist Church through conversation and commentary. And I leave you now with the words of John Wesley, I think very appropriate for our conversation today. Here's the quote. Though we cannot think alike, may we not love alike. May we not be of one heart, though we are not of one opinion. Without all doubt, we may, herein, all the children of God may unite, notwithstanding these smaller differences. Close quote. The words of John Wesley. Until next time, friends, this is Reverend Dr. Brad Miller with the United Methodist People Podcast. Now go do all the good you can. Thanks so much for listening to the United Methodist People podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. You can continue the conversation and commentary about strengthening the connection in the United Methodist Church to accomplish our mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Visit the United Methodist People podcast on the web at unitedmethodistpodcast.com and connect at facebook.com slash United Methodist Podcast. And always do all the good you can.